Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October 28, 2015. This is episode 1667 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a guy hanging on the line right now I think you guys are really going to enjoy hearing from. Um, his name is Paul Martin. He is a lawyer, but we're not here to talk about the law at all. We are here to talk about developing a culture of preparedness in America. He is the author of a new book called Pivot Points, Creating a Culture of Preparedness and Resiliency in America. We'll have him on in just a minute, and I really think you will like a lot of what he has to say. Before we do that, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what, just just stick with us. And when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later, it was February of the next year, that we launched the MSB. And we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that 
that and more with the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Next up, let's have a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1667, because the episode is 1667. I have three for you today from Alex Rugg. I have the first modern police force, inequality under the law. I have, do the French have better blood? And I have paradise lost, the republic has fallen. Uh, all of these are good. I could flip a coin a couple times to pare it down. I'm just going to read the first one because it's first, and I think it does have something to teach us about today. King Louis XIV of France creates the first modern police force by appointing Gabriel Nicolas to the position of lieutenant general of the police. The current police organization is an uncoordinated mishmash of local police districts and the Royal Watch, which consists of archers on the wall ready to shoot. Don't start a riot. Lieutenant general is nominally a nobleman, but in fact, Gabriel was born to a poor family, married into a noble family, and bought his way to higher office. That's considered a normal career path. He uses his royal commission to impose good order and discipline in a coordinated fashion and requires policemen to patrol their districts at least once every 14 days, wear clean uniforms, and send him written reports. He also instructs detectives to solve crimes using stricter standards of evidence. The new organization becomes the first recognizable modern police force. The lieutenant general is not winning a lot of friends, but the nobles are going along with the changes. For now, the police are fighting crime. In later years, the police will be used to impose public policy. They will be disbanded during the French Revolution, but return under Napoleon as the prefecture of police. My take by Alex Shrugged. In the modern day, the Paris police are still known as the archers. People still remember the police as men on a wall waiting to shoot anyone who gets out of line. England didn't have a modern police force until 1750. Before that time, policing such as it was was constructed, conducted by the sheriff, private armsmen, and those having an interest in general good order, such as local citizens. The system worked okay for catching habitual offenders. After all, most locals knew who the bad guys were, and the sheriff knew as well. The system didn't work very efficiently when the person committing a crime was a very important person. Now that I think of it, the system still works that way. Equality under the law is a very old concept and remembered more for its violation than its use. It didn't start with the American Revolution. It comes from the Bible. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partially partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. Leviticus 19.15. Indeed. Um... My assertion here is perhaps the only way to solve this problem then is for men not to have positions of privilege and authority in the first place. That if all men are to be treated equally under whatever we consider the law or the rules, that all men should be equal, period. Not in ability, not in talent, not in wealth, but in position of authority and power over others. In other words, men should not have power over other men, period, infinity, the end. But such as we are right now as a species, uh, still acting at a level that I consider childish, many of us crave the authority of the state. Least our neighbor do something we disapprove of. My take by Jack Spierko. Next up, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade and give you a special announcement if you haven't seen it already on the blog today. I am doing a 24-hour sale. Yes, a little bit of salesmanship. Uh, you can get MSB membership for the next in the next 24 hours for the whopping price of $30 for your first year. 
This uh, is open to new members and members who have expired accounts that want to renew now. Uh, you can log in if you're an expired member. Just use discount code 24hours, and that's 24hours. Don't spell out 24. 24hours. And uh, you'll get that discount. If you're a new member, you can just sign up using that. If you want to join by mail, by snail mail, you can do that. If you are postmarked by tomorrow evening, I will accept the discount code for you. And there's more information at the website. Uh, you'll see a post there that says 24-hour MSB sale. Now, what's interesting is I also just brought on the promised new vendor, In the world of silver, yes. Schieffer Select Coins and Collectibles has joined the MSB with 10% off all orders over $300. Isn't that interesting how those numbers work out? You know, Christmas is coming. What if instead of buying plastic crap for all those kids in your life, you went out and got them some really cool old coins? See, this is part of why I bought Schieffer Select on. Uh, they do do sell regular bullion as well, but what they really specialize in is you know the the sought after numismatic coins. Uh, maybe not always you know MS sixty six graded stuff, but the stuff you know in in great condition where you can still see the dates and know where the coinage came from. The stuff you can use to help teach those kids history and value at the same time in money. And uh, you know if you have a sizable family, spending three hundred bucks on silver is not hard to do. But if you did that today. And you joined as a new member of the MSB, and you used your discount code, in that one purchase, your MSB membership cost would be returned to you. You get 364 days to use it on other things at no real cost. That's what I try to do. I try to build value into the MSB. Oh, and if you're a gun guy, uh, you might want to think about uh, using this sale, because I can't tell you yet, but there will be another uh, MSB vendor coming up very, very soon, probably this week. Maybe early next week, depending on if I have time to get the updates done to the website. But I've got that in the works for you right now. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. My guest is Paul Martin. Paul is a lawyer by training and a lobbyist by occupation. I don't know how good we're going to get along over that. But uh, Paul hardly fits the uh, image of the prepper stereotype. On his first day of law school, though, at the University of Miami, Hurricane Andrew slammed into the city. He has experience now in uh, both urban Miami and childhood rural Tennessee, convinced him the nation needs to foster a culture of preparedness. He's a former volunteer firefighter, first responder. He's also a general class ham radio operator, severe storm spotter, and a concealed handgun license instructor right here in the state of Texas where I'm from. And he joins us today to talk about building a culture of preparedness and resiliency in America. And with that, hey, Paul, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm really glad to have you on today. I uh, I had a chance to go through your book. I wasn't able to read it cover to cover, but uh, you were nice enough to send me a copy, and I really like the layout and the format of it and the angle you're coming at from. But before we get into talking about disaster preparedness and and developing a culture of preparedness in America, could you just kind of start out with, you know, how did you get into this world in the first place? Uh Most people tend to come into the preparedness industry on kind of a wonky path. Would you say the same is true of yourself? I suspect that's true. You know, I think like for most preppers, this started as an interest for me when I was a kid. We had storms growing up. Uh, I tell a story in the in the book about a neighbor's house when we lived out in the country. The neighbor's house burned down one night, and my family went to help the firefighters. And that was one of the things that you start to really realize is that In terms of an overall preparedness community, it is about community. And there are some things we just simply cannot outsource to the government. We all need to be better prepared. And so 
after being in Miami right at the beginning of uh, my law school career, I moved to Miami in August of 1992. Hurricane Andrew came about a week after I arrived and really did not know a soul in Miami at the time. And living through that post-hurricane environment and seeing so many people who had lived in Miami and who lived in Florida essentially all their lives who had zero preparations. I guess I kind of had an excuse and that I was just some dumb country kid from Tennessee who'd moved in a week ago. Some of these folks had lived in Florida, and particularly Miami, for 50, 60 years and had very little in the way of supplies, very little in the way of, of house readiness and uh, house resiliency in terms of shutters and things like that. And it really surprised me just how fragile the the world is. You know, as technology gets uh, more and more prevalent in our lives, uh, it's great, and technology does a lot of wonderful things. It's allowing us to have this this podcast today. But at the same time, it makes our, our life systems and our, our financial systems and our grocery systems much more vulnerable to either attacks or just through simple accidents. And so as you pay attention to these things, you realize that as a society, we just aren't as prepared and as resilient as we were 20 or 30 years ago. And so I started blogging about this and started blogging about my own preparedness efforts, and my mind had kind of shifted along the way in that preparedness for many people, and I used to think this way, preparedness is about winning. Mainly, I'm going to be a winner after the disaster, and those who prepared did not. And I harbored that mindset for a number of years. But as I got older, as my my faith grew, as I examined, self-examined my, my citizenship and the obligations of citizenship, I realized we in the preparedness community are missing a golden opportunity to be the advocates for a stronger, more resilient, more prepared nation. And that's really what started this, this project off with my, with my new blog and the book is trying to get this preparedness community, people like your listeners and people who are just starting to get into preparedness to be the acolytes, to be the disciples, to be the ambassadors of a preparedness community and a, create a culture of preparedness in America. You know, just as an aside before we go forward, I grew up in Florida in the early 80s. And I don't remember exactly when Andrew hit. It had to be 92-ish because I was in the, it was in the Army in Panama and I remember distinctively that because it affected us because the APO that all our mail and all our supplies came through was at uh, Homestead Air Force Base. But, you know, so you're talking maybe 10-year gap in there. When I was a kid, I mean, they handed out hurricane tracking maps at Eckerd Drugs. Uh, people had their windows taped up when there, whenever there was as much as a tropical storm coming in. And it did seem to me that the residents of Miami and South Florida were caught completely wholly unprepared and it seemed like there was some point right in that kind of mid-80s period where everything just kind of went away, if that makes sense. I, I really don't understand it, but it seems like it was that mid-80s period when America kind of lost touch with this concept of being prepared for disaster. Well, certainly in Florida, and I think a lot of that was because there was a period of time there where Florida luckily had not had any significant tropical weather, no storms, no hurricanes. And so people were lulled into a false sense of security. And I remember moving into my apartment the week before Hurricane Andrew. And I was living about five miles from the coast is the way the crow flies. And the news came on and they said, there's this disturbance out in the Atlantic. It looks like it may be a big storm, but don't worry, it's not going to hit Miami. That was on Tuesday or Wednesday. And one of the few preparedness supplies I had just as a recent 22-year-old college student was a small weather radio. And I had the foresight to go to 
my locals, uh, Winn-Dixie, and get a copy of the Miami Herald, which had that hurricane map you're talking about. And so I start tracking the storm, listening to the updates on the weather radio. Now, I'm no meteorologist, but I can track a storm using a sure. map, and, and I can figure out that, hey, unless something changes, this storm is going to impact Miami. And all of a sudden, um, within about 12 hours, the news went from it's not a factor to we're going to start evacuating Miami Beach and the coastal areas of Miami at 6 o'clock in the morning. And this was eight hours' notice. And so I, the first thing I did that following morning was I, I, I prepped all night, cooked some spaghetti. because I didn't know what to do. I'm just some kid from Tennessee. I'd never been through a hurricane. And so I cooked some food, threw it in my freezer, slept a few hours that night, got up and went to the local drugstore first thing in the morning. And there were people lined up to get batteries, to get bottled water. Mm. And I'm thinking, I'm new to this. I have my excuse, but some of you folks listening to you, you've lived here all your lives, and you're just now getting prepared for the storm. And so that's when it really dawned on me that there's a huge disconnect in the country when it comes to disasters. And you think about, you fast forward a number of years, think about Hurricane Katrina and the impact that had and the fact that we all got to see that unfold in real time uh, due to cable news. And then you think, wow, that really should have woken people up, or 9-11 should have woken people up. And then you have Hurricane Sandy, which struck, I guess, in 2012. And within hours, people in Manhattan and in New York City were dumpster diving for food because they did not have supplies for a storm they knew was coming. Having seen the effects of Hurricane Katrina and all the other storms and all the other crises we've had since then, and so it really dawns on me that we don't have a culture of preparedness in America where, you know, preparedness is often seen as a figment of someone's overactive imagination or you are, uh, you're, you're just seen as, as someone who's mentally unstable. Those are, that's how preppers are perceived in, in the media. And I think it's up to this community to shift away from that and take preparedness and make it seem as the obligation of good citizenship that it is. Absolutely. I mean, you've actually said that in spite of all the things we hear about preparedness now and the growth of the preparedness industry, that the disaster preparedness industry in this country has failed. And I'd like you to talk about that for a minute. But before you do, I kind of want to point out that you're kind of in a, I guess, a different world for preparedness when you're here at TSP. I mean, we are the people that loathe things like doomsday preppers because we think it's so over-the-top, nonsensical, and I mean, I know people that have been on that show, and I know that they're not how they were painted, that that was all about theatrics. So is that kind of where you're coming from with this, or is it also practical as well? Well, yeah. I mean, let's let's start and talk about the, the, the doomsday prepper shows, and I can appreciate the fact that most preppers look at this and say, this isn't realistic. The problem is, is that the non-prepping country, the rest of the country, and based on the numbers I've seen, 2%, 3% of Americans consider themselves as preppers, which means 97 to 98% are not. If 97 to 98% of the American people, if the only source of prepper news and their view of preppers comes from reality shows like that or news articles that say preppers, the only thing they're concerned about is a full-bore collapse of society, that is the mindset that we are up against. And so what I encourage people to do, people in the preparedness community to do, is that we have to, if we want to create uh, an environment in a country where we aren't seen as lunatics and we're not seen as just being uh, unreasonably paranoid, 
we have to be the ones who facilitate that change. And I talk about the fact that the preparedness movement has failed, not necessarily industries who supply the preparedness movement, because that has been one of the great things, I think, about just the free market is the fact that you have these individual entrepreneurs who are going out and catering to people like you and me and your listeners. But the movement itself has failed. And the reason I say that is despite the fact that more and more people are paying attention to disasters and they're seeing it in real time, they're not taking action. And so part of that is because I believe that those of us in the preparedness community, and I, I am chief among the people who have not done a very good job until lately of doing this, is that we need to be going out into the communities, and we need to be setting aside our fears that people are going to see us as mentally unstable or people are going to come and take our stuff in it after a disaster. And we need to be effectuating that change and getting people on board. It shocks me, and it shouldn't, but it does. When I start a small meetup group and I invite my friends who may or may not be preppers, I say, I'm going to start this meetup group. I am always shocked at the number of people who I never thought would be interested in preparedness reach out to me and say, you know, this is something I've really been meaning to do for a long time, and I'm glad you're doing this because I want to learn from someone who isn't some sort of paranoid survivalist type. And you and I know that the vast majority of people in the preparedness movement are not paranoid survivalist types, but that's the way we've been portrayed in the media. That's the way we've been portrayed in a lot of these shows. And so it's incumbent upon us if we really want to have that change in how we are perceived and if we want to build a more resilient, a stronger nation, this is what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to get out of our homes and start making friends with people who are not preppers and encouraging them and setting the example. I agree with that a lot. And I'll tell you the other side of this that I see, and it's It's why we've taught things here the way we have for so long. I think the biggest problem I see with failure in the preparedness movement is that the immediate reaction, even by the person that's not mentally disturbed and just thinks the end of the world is coming, is to, is to start trying to prepare immediately for the absolute worst-case scenario. Instead of saying, hey, look, let's back up and let's prepare for something like storm blows the roof off the house. We're, we're, easy, dog. We're without power for a couple days. Dad lost his job on the same day. Mom lost her job. And when people start there at those basic levels, then they tend to do well getting to the more advanced level. But if they try to start at the advanced level, it's like trying to go from Jacksonville to Portland, Maine, and, and not passing through somewhere like Philadelphia. You, there, there's a path to get there. And when people try to go to the, you know, like almost teleport to the other end, inevitably, very fundamental things get left out, things that... You know, you'd think, well, if you're that prepared, then, well, your power's out for two days. You should be all right. And what there are is they're sitting on five pallets of MREs, you know, and a bunch of silver. And there's nothing wrong with MREs other than they get old after a while. And silver's a good hedge against inflation, but that's not preparedness. That is reactionary, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I think we all have to be mindful of in the preparedness movement when we get people started in this is that when you go to – Amazon or on the internet and you start to research and put yourself in the position of being a brand new prepper. You're on board, you're on message, and maybe you've set some money aside and you're willing to invest in this. And we often see in the books and the literature and the YouTube videos that the so-called best solution is for us to unplug and move out into the country and all become homesteaders. Well, the vast majority of people simply aren't going to do that. And what happens is, is that these people can become quickly overwhelmed and this paralysis sets in. And they say, you know, I know I need to be better prepared, but I don't know where to start. And I'll give you an example of this story. I was talking to a friend of mine who read my book, 
And this is an individual who has the resources to go buy a year's worth of food for not just for himself, but for his family and in a position to do a lot for his family uh, financially. And he was going through the book and he says, you know, I really need to get some food set aside, but I don't know where to start. And I thought, you know, that really strikes me as, as kind of odd because you think about all the resources that are out there, all the stories, all the articles on the line, all the YouTube videos, all the books. I mean, the libraries have been written about the subject now. And yet people who are really bright, uh, financially successful people, successful in the business world, they struggle to take those first steps because even they feel overwhelmed. And so that's something that people like you and I have to keep in mind when we go to these people and, and we're encouraging people to prepare is to do what exactly what you're talking about is be prepared for the smaller things. You know, I, I do a preparedness conference every year, and one of the things I like to tell people in the audience is execute the basics well. Execute the basics well. And you can be the guy with a closet full of guns and MREs and a bag of silver, but if you're not prepared for a job loss or if you're not prepared for uh, some other minor medical emergency in your home, you're not prepping. You're just using preparedness as a justification, as a reason to go buy toys and other things that you would have bought anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's that is the crux of the problem because like your friend that didn't know where to start i mean i tell people to start with food security this way get a notebook a 25 cent notebook throw it on the counter in your kitchen write down everything you and your family eat whether it's good for you or bad for you doesn't matter it is what it is it's what you eat every time you write something down at stores it doesn't have to go in the refrigerator put a star next to it every time you use it more than once put a check mark next to it there's your shopping list next time you go to the store double up on that stuff build the depth of your pantry People can get two, three weeks of, of food, food resiliency just from that. No special stores, and then you're storing what you eat and eat what you store. And I find that, like, for what you're talking about, this kind of evangelical thing to go out and create new preppers, which is what we do here, um, that works because all of a sudden, all of the concept that this is somehow foreign or outside or specialized or some ex-Delta Force operations guys that think the blue helmets are going to come get us all due, it just becomes something that makes perfect friggin' sense. And my response to, to anybody that says it doesn't is, if nothing else, I got convenience. I never go to the neighbor and ask for a cup of sugar. But if they come here, I got one. Uh, absolutely. You know, this is the sort of, of mindset that we have to, to realize. And the good news is, is that there are so many people out there who just want to get involved in prepping. They just need someone they trust, someone they already know. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book is that we as a preparedness community need to be out and involved in our communities. Forget about preparedness for a second. It's people like this group that need to be serving on city councils, that need to be serving on the PTA, that need to be serving on county boards and commissions, because we bring a different perspective and a different voice to those conversations. And when people see us involved in the community, they are more apt to listen to us when it comes to the reasons why we are getting prepared. And the other part of this is, and I'm sure you hear this as well, is that, well, I just don't have the money. I don't have the money to prepare. And, I, and some people don't, and I get that. And I say, well, tell me this. How much do you spend on cable every month? How much do you spend on your cell phone package every month? How much do you spend on beer every month? How much do you spend on junk food every month? Take some of that money. If you just do it for a year, take some of that money and set it aside and let that be your fund for your preparedness efforts over the next year. You will be amazed 
at just how well you can get prepared for all but the most catastrophic disasters just in a six, eight, 12 month period of time. Sound like a graduate of Survival Podcast University. <laughs> um, you, you, your new book is called Pivot Points, Creating a Culture of Preparedness and Resiliency in America. On that, what does a culture of preparedness, in your opinion, look like, and how do we build one? Well, the culture of preparedness looks like the sort of the things that we do, that this group does on a regular basis. But it's more the basic sorts of things. For example, everyone gets CPR trained. Everyone has a working weather radio in their house. People have food set aside in case of an emergency. And an emergency can be something as mundane as the power has gone out for 48 hours and I can't go to the grocery store or a job loss or maybe it is some sort of regional emergency. Uh, people have bug out kits or emergency supplies, call it whatever you want, in their vehicles for two or three days. We're just executing the basics well. Uh, and so those are the sorts of things that if we all just did that, if we all as Americans, as part of our patriotic citizenship duty, just executed the basics well and just took those basic steps, we would be so much better off. We would not be dumpster diving for food after a storm. We would not be going to uh, the government lines to get bottled water and some military rations to feed our families for two or three days until more help arrives. We wouldn't have to do that. And so the second part of your question was, how do we go about building that culture? And so the book is called Pivot Points because the pivot points in my mind are those things that motivate you and motivate others to prepare with the understanding that what motivates me may be completely different than what motivates someone else, and that's okay. So often I'll hear conversations between two preppers, and prepper A says, well, I'm preparing for a financial collapse, and prepper B says, well, I'm preparing for an EMP. And then prepper A and prepper B start arguing with each other over the right thing to prepare for. And what I want to say is if you're prepared for financial collapse and you're prepared for EMP, are you not prepared for pretty much any other disaster that comes your way? Why are we picking and choosing and debating each other over the quote-unquote right thing to be worried about? Just be happy that the other guy's prepared. Just be happy that they're not going to be coming to you after a disaster looking for help. And so once we find our pivot points, and pivot points can be your faith, it can be your responsibility to your family, it can be the fact that you're very charitable and you're active in organizations and you want to be part of the solution after an emergency, you want to get yourself prepared so that you're not required, you're not sitting on the sidelines after a disaster. And so finding your pivot point, number one, getting yourself prepared, number two, and third, finding what I call your preparedness service project. And that is, what are you going to do to help create this culture of preparedness in America? That could be going to your local schools and helping them set up a CPR training program. It could be going to your local house of worship and helping them set up some sort of continuity of services or a way to check on the elderly after a disaster. It could be working with your homeowners association to do fire safety day in your neighborhood. There's all sorts of opportunities, and we're only limited by our imagination. Yeah, definitely. And I'll tell you what, whenever I'm interviewed by media, mainstream media, I mean, whenever I allow them to speak to me, <laughs> I uh, and they say, well, what are you preparing for? Uh, my response is always, well, we're preparing to deal without systems of support. And they'll say, well, why would that happen? And my response is, there's a lot of things we can talk about, because I know people want to do that, but overall, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter why. You don't have electricity. It really doesn't matter why you can't get your money out of the bank, whether it's a financial collapse or, gee, the power went out everywhere and they're closed. It, it doesn't matter. You still have to deal with that shortfall. 
And if you're not prepared to deal with it, you're just as sunk, whether it's because, you know, zombies ate your tomatoes or because you lost your job. And I think that's what people don't really understand when they, when they, because when they ask that question and they're not doing it to bait you or whatever, when they're asking the question legitimately, you know, you talk to someone, they're like, well, what would I have to worry about? They're trying to assail their fear with the concept they don't need to worry about it. They're trying to make sure that normalcy bias and that perception bias stays bolted in place because they don't want it exposed. So the concept is, well, I'll just point out that whatever this person says is unlikely, but the fact that you might have to deal without systems of support, period, is, is highly unlikely that it ever wouldn't occur to you in your life. I'm sure you've had to have, you know, you personally have had power outages, even if we took Andrew out of the equation, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, here in Texas, we, as you know, we have all sorts of uh, disasters. We've had wildfires and flooding within 72 hours mm -hmm. of each other just in the last week. Yep. I mean, and, and people are like, oh, that's terrible. And we all are like, well, this Texas. That's just how it is here. We're, we're accustomed to that. You know, we have, uh, we've had. Why don't you evacuate during a tornado? Because we'd evacuate from March until July. Right. Right. We have to, we have to deal with this. This is part of living here. And so people, I think, in Texas and other places that are disaster-prone are getting a bit better at it. But, you know, you're talking about being interviewed by the media, and that's the, the portrayal of the media is that if you're prepping, you are prepare, prepping for that worst-case scenario. You would never prepare, in their minds, for the local power outage or the fact that you might lose your job or a tornado that strikes uh, the community down the street where you could be a, a resource and you could help with you know feeding people or providing emergency aid or whatever it is you're never prepared you're never portrayed by the media as someone who is preparing to be an asset to the community after a disaster so there's an assumption there in their part that we are all very selfish people And I, and I talk about this in the book is that, you know, my mindset has, has evolved over time. And admittedly, my mindset was fairly selfish because I was one of these people who kind of had this mentality of, I'm going to be a winner after the disaster and you're not. And I think some of that stemmed from the fact that your friends think you're nuts for getting into this. <laughs> the media thinks you're nuts for doing this. And you, after you are just constantly assailed by these messages that you're crazy or that you're just being silly or that your, your imagination is just overactive, you have a tendency to withdraw and just associate with your own kind. And I've noticed over the last 10 years that I've kind of put that aside and said, rather than withdrawing, this is our opportunity, our opportunity to make an impact, a meaningful long-term impact on our communities. We need to be out setting the course, setting the example, because I'm finding that more and more people just need someone to show them the way. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that there's more and more people are being less and less concerned with revealing the fact that they are a, a, a prepper, if you want to use that word. I, I refer to what we do as modern survivalism, and anybody tells me they're not a survivalist, well, go stand in front of a truck that's doing 90 and see how quick you become one. But there is this fear, right? There's this fear that, you know, when a disaster happens, if everybody knows that I'm the guy that's prepared, then, you know, I'm going to have a line at my door at best and maybe somebody trying to hurt me to get what I have at worst. What do you say to people that bring that objection up when they, you know, they bring up a legitimate concern of OPSEC? But, and I talk about that in the book, and I think that's a very good thing for us to get out into the open. And first of all, I am sympathetic to those concerns because when I look at the government's response, for example, It is 
uh, it comes at you from both directions. You have FEMA that says, make a kid have a plan. And if we all did what FEMA just suggested, having a few days of food and water, having some first aid supplies, we'd all be better off. So you got on one hand, you have the federal government through FEMA telling you, make a kid have a plan. And then on the other hand, you have the FBI issuing memos to preparedness vendors stating, now, if someone buys so many uh, waterproof matches, and if they buy night vision, if they buy this, they buy that, we want you to report them to the FBI. And so I want to say the federal government... Which is it, guys? Do you want us prepared or do you not? Because you have two government agencies saying things that are in complete opposite uh, uh, polarization to each other. And so I can appreciate the fact that there are people out there who see these and see these. You know, and your viewers, your listeners, I know, are familiar with the MIAC report, the fact that you've got government agencies out there saying if you have a Ron Paul bumper sticker on your car, you're probably a domestic terrorist. And, of course, they had since had to retract that. But I can understand why people think that way. But I tell people we have to set that fear aside. Between now and whatever disaster it happens, pick your disaster. Are we content to just sit and be prepared and not help others? We are a very resilient nation. And you look at Katrina. If you've been to New Orleans post-Katrina, uh, you see that that city is coming back, and it's coming back with a lot of vibrancy. Uh, these people are our countrymen. These are our fellow Americans. And we need to start setting aside that fear and start uh, uh, embracing our obligation as citizens. When I talk to, to people who are in this movement and I say, do you consider yourself a patriot? Do you consider yourself along the lines of the founding fathers? And, of course, everyone says, oh, absolutely, I'm a patriot. And I said, so when the patriots and the founding fathers wrote in the Declaration of Independence about pledging their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor, are you willing to do that now for your country today to help make people more prepared? And, of course, there's a long pause, and they stumble, and they hem and haul, and they give me an example. And I say, look, I don't expect people to sell everything they own to help create a uh, culture of preparedness in America. But you just told me you consider yourself a patriot, and you just told me that you admire the founding fathers. Don't we have an obligation as citizens and as people in the preparedness movement to be the acolytes, to be those ambassadors, to go out and do our patriotic duty to simply help others get better prepared? And so set that fear aside and be a leader rather than someone who's just watching from the sidelines. I, my take on that is everything you said is true, plus. And, and the plus is, number one, 90% of the disasters that occur are the type of disasters that you're dealing with for, from a day to three days to three weeks. They're going to end. They're, they're not the end of the world disasters. If they were, you and I wouldn't be talking right now. We'd be out dressed like Mel Gibson, shooting at people riding around on vehicles that shouldn't be able to go because there's no gas anymore, but somehow they still go. So... In all of those cases, I'm not worried about someone. In fact, I'm out looking for who I can help, right? And, I mean, I, I say to these people, like, there's probably some old lady down the road that took care of your kids when they were in school. Are you going to let her go hungry in a disaster? And, of course, that's always, the, you know, the foot behind, like, no, right? So th that just doesn't even apply to all of those things. And then you say, well, what if we do have the big one? Well, tr trust me, this is how I feel. It won't be very long before you'll be trying to recruit people. Right, because we're going, you're going to get through something like that on your own anyway. So the concept of being known as being organized and prepared allows you to step into a leadership role should things ever get that bad, which is where you belong if you're prepared. So That's exactly right. It doesn't right. even make any sense to me that you'd hide. When I started this show back in 2008, I had people, oh, he's made the big mistake. Now they're going to come get. Who is going to come get me? And my my last thought is, if I was a bad guy and it was the end of the world as we know it, and I had a list of a place where people were really prepared, those are all the places I wouldn't go to because I don't want to get shot. So, I mean, 
take your pick for your poison there. To me, it doesn't really matter. There's no sense in hiding who you are because in that kind of disaster, existing makes you a target. Being prepared puts you in a position to be a leader in the rebuilding process so that you can build the communities stronger and better and have a bigger sense of community. And so, for example, what we're seeing, and we're seeing all these interesting things that are happening in places I never would have imagined. For example, you have the Rockefeller Foundation that's building this Resilient Cities project, and I'll use San Francisco as an example. You have neighborhoods in San Francisco who are creating their own caches of, of disaster supplies and creating community disaster responses that are completely independent of local, state, and federal government. These are just neighborhood associations who are doing this on their own. And, you know, you think about places like San Francisco, which tend to be politically left of center and that, you know, the government's going to save us. They're getting on board with the fact that the government, and this is not a criticism of government, it's just a reality, the government cannot simply move in after disaster, sprinkle some unicorn dust and some rainbows, and make everything smiley and happy again in a matter of hours. It's a long time, and so communities need to be prepared to be their own first responders. And the people that are shaping that are the people in the preparedness movement. We all need to be out doing that so that we put ourselves in a position to be leaders in times of crisis. Yep, absolutely. So what do you think we can do to help dispel the myth that we're all nuts? I mean, other than the types of things we've been talking about up till now, because there is that perception by society, oh, you're one of those guys. And my response to that is always, who are those guys? Because I don't know that I fit the group you, you're thinking about. But I know what they mean, and I know what they think when they hear preparedness from somebody. So the way I think the antidote to this is model citizenship. We are active in the communities. We are courteous to people. We vote. Uh, we get involved in various activities in our houses of worship. We get involved in the local homeowners association. We do those things that allow people to see us as active in the community, being good stewards of what we have. And people respect that, and people respect those who get involved in charities, you know. And it doesn't have to be a disaster charity. If you're involved in a local animal shelter, people like people who are involved in animal welfare projects because they're seen as nice people. If you're doing those sorts of things, if you are generally a nice person, you're getting involved in the community, people are going to be more apt to listen to you when you talk about the need to be prepared. Because now you're not the nut job in camouflage waiting for that Mad Max scenario, you're Joe Smith who's on the local PTA and who just happens to be into preparedness. And so that's how we start to soften the image. And I don't, I, Soften may not be the right word. Maybe change the image. Whatever, Use whatever word makes you feel more comfortable, makes more sense to you. But I think that we have to be more involved in our neighborhoods and in our, our houses of worship, and then people will come and have conversations with us. If I had stopped having conversation about preparedness to every single person who laughed at me, I would have missed a number of opportunities for when those same people came back to me two or three years later and said, you know, I've been watching the news. I'm really starting to get concerned about whatever, whatever perils, that you know, terrorism or floods or wildfires, whatever it is. I'm really getting concerned about that. Can I take you to lunch and talk to you about your preparedness efforts? If I had shut those people out, I never would have had an opportunity to have that conversation and to help them. So by being open and willing to talk about this, being a leader in our communities, that's what's going to start to shape that image and start soften that image, change that image, and have people gravitate more and make this a priority in their lives. 
Yeah, and I'll tell you another thing that I found works really well is the cool stuff that's not like tactical, just plain cool. Like we teach people to build battery banks you can keep in a closet that are plugged into a smart charger that are always on, that have a little, uh, you know, a couple inverters in them and some ways where you can charge your peripherals and stuff like that. But you show somebody that when they're over to your house, it's not that you've revealed that you have, you know, 5,000 days worth of food stored up or something, but people are like, well, that's really cool. You know, you can show them, I can plug my computer into that, and I have a business I run out of the house, and that bank will run my computer, my modem, all my production facility for five hours. So even when I'm, when I'm out of power, I could, I could, I could get by for a day doing my job. And people think, well, that's cool. I'd like one of those. And then you can show them, okay, well, this is a $35 shelf from, from Walmart. This is an inverter you can buy on Amazon for 50 bucks. These are, these are, you know, marine batteries. You can buy it, you know, Sears. You can buy them at Costco. You can buy them at Walmart. You can buy them anywhere. This is how it all bolts together. You can build one of these in a day with your kid. And there's like zero, they might not do it because they may not have the money or whatever, but there's no resistance to that of it being radical or extreme because it's cool. I even have one that's in the toolbox on the back of my truck that is constantly recharged by the truck. When people see that, they're like, oh, that's that's a cool thing. And I usually find that if you can get people to take one step, they'll take the next step all by themselves. Along those lines, one of the things I like to do is have things that I can take out into the community or even to my front yard and show people. So, for example, I have a solar oven, and that's a sure. great disaster preparedness tool. I like to take that thing to tailgates, to various picnics, things like that, and set it up and bake cookies. And I'm not there because I enjoy baking cookies. I'm there being the ambassador for preparedness. And so little kids love to come up, ooh, ah, what's that? And parents come up and they ooh and ah, and they want to talk about the solar oven. And so we, and, and particularly in Austin, because we have a lot of folks here who are into alternative power and being green and all, that's all great. And I say, the real benefit for me and my family is if we ever have a power outage, we can purify water. We can cook some meals. We have all sorts of resources available to us now simply because we have this little box with these shiny mirrors that surround it. And so people are just mesmerized at the idea that something that is quote-unquote cool could be used in a disaster application. And so anytime we have opportunities to take solar cooking or you know gadgets out of our truck and show, oh, this is a nice device I have. Well, yes, and I keep this in the truck in part because you might get stuck somewhere. You might have some severe weather. You might be forced to sleep in your truck one night. I keep stuff in there just in case. And you start to see the light come on. And, you know, it's particularly now I have a teenager in the house, and she's a senior getting ready to graduate, go off to college, and she and her friends come over, and I talk to them about this stuff. And I say, when you're off at college, what are you going to do if your car breaks down and you're nowhere near a hotel and you need to, to, to sleep in your car for a night or whatever? And they'll come to me later on and they'll say, you know, talk to me about what I should keep in my vehicle moving forward. And those are the conversations that we, we just need to have. Well, I really like that, that, that seed planting there. You know, what do you do if and then let it go? If you start telling them what to do, they don't listen, right? Especially kids, right? But if you, if you just put the question in and don't offer an answer, it's, it's only a matter of time before they come back around and start to think about it because it kind of sticks there. But since you're a solar oven guy, let me give you my blow people away simple recipe for a solar oven. Take a uh, pork roast, like a piece of pork shoulder, throw it in your pot, handful of like two diced apples and a big diced onion and a couple cloves of garlic and do that for about four hours. Because all of a sudden then people are eating that going, you made this with what? It, because it is just absolutely fantastic. And there's very few things 
available that slow cook with the moisture and the beauty of a solar oven. And that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about with the battery bank. That's like, it's cool, you know, and you can get one or you can make one, you know, you can take that to a science club and say this one, yeah, you buy this, it comes with this reflector and all, but this can be built for a few dollars. If you really want to build one kind of from scraps and stuff like that and learn about that process, especially all the stuff with photovoltaics, it's only so efficient, but solar heat is very efficient. And, Those types of things put little hooks into people and kind of pull them just enough to kind of get that, that stone moving and get it rolling. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the things I've learned recently is that when you have dual or triple applications of a particular technology or process, you're much more likely to get people to invest in it. For example, at my church, our local youth group goes and does uh a mission project where they help people repair homes, the people who can't afford repair homes, and some of the contractors in our congregation go and, and help supervise. And so I sent 50 smoke detectors with our smoke alarms with our youth group a couple of years ago. And I had the, and I told the leaders, I said, you install these however you, you want to install them. And so the people who were receiving the benefit saw the church coming in and helping them. The kids who were installing them got to learn about smoke alarms, and got to see that the adults and the church thought this was a priority. So we're educating two different groups about preparedness at the same time. And the other scenario I will give you is I, I'm on the board of trustees of my, of my school, my high school, and I've been working with them to improve their emergency and disaster preparedness. And one of the things I've told them to get involved in is get a ham radio set up. And they kind of scratch their heads and they look at me and they, yeah, gee, Paul, that's nice. And, you know, it's kind of that, you well, once again, Paul has an overactive imagination. I said, you don't get it. Think about the STEM applications of science, technology, engineering, math. You could have all sorts of science experiments with this ham radio uh, that you could do for your, in your science classes. And when I pose it as a science technology, a learning technology that has a disaster application, then all of a sudden they're far more interested yep. in installing this. And so that's one of the challenges that I think we have in this community is that we have to come up with ways for technologies, for processes, for procedures to have dual, triple application because people are far more inclined to buy into it if they can justify it using a number of means. Or as we used to say in sales, feature, sales uh, features tell and benefits sell. And people need to understand the tactical, real-world benefits that these things uh, provide them with in a disaster and in everyday life. That seems to really uh, awaken people. Now, you've mentioned uh, your church quite a bit. You've mentioned civic activity. And in your book, you talk a lot about faith and citizenship. How do you personally feel this factors into creating a culture of preparedness? Well, for people of faith particularly of the Judeo-Christian tradition, there are a number of scriptural references that urge us to be prepared. And they urge us to be prepared not only to take care of ourselves, but that so that we can fulfill the missions of the church uh, for others during times of disaster. And it also provides a source of strength for us in, in, in critical times where that we all need, that, that source of psychological and mental strength, that our churches and our, our synagogues and our houses of worship And our tenets of faith provide that for us. And so, and the other part of that is, is that houses of worship are great platforms for building communities of preparedness. You have a physical structure, you have a, a house of worship, a church, a synagogue, whatever, that has a, be a, a membership that you can reach. And so there are a lot of obligations and, and a lot of opportunities for, uh, churches and, and, and other houses of worship to play 
in a time of disaster. You think about every disaster here in Texas, for example, where the churches open their doors up and they become kind of community centers for not only feeding people and hydrating them, but also providing shelter, providing emergency services. It becomes kind of like a, uh, an, a, a satellite town hall, if you will, in these places. And so those are wonderful opportunities and wonderful assets to have in building the culture of preparedness. On the issue of citizenship, we have to be mindful that not everyone is a person of faith, and I, I can respect that. But every one of us is a citizen, and I always like to say that good preparedness is good citizenship because it allows us to be an asset to our communities when things go wrong. And so we have an obligation to carry out those those obligations of, of citizenship. And so one of the things I, I point out in the book is that when you look at the oath that we require new citizens to take, people who have gone through the process and immigrated to the United States and they've decided they want to be a U.S. citizen and they take that oath, I encourage people who are natural-born citizens to go read that oath sometimes because you don't really think about your obligations as a citizen and what we're what we're requiring of these new citizens to do. You're requiring these people to take up arms to defend the Constitution. You're requiring these people to you know, swear off loyalties to all other uh, all other governments. There are all sorts of obligations that we just, as people who were born here, blessed to be born here, we, we sometimes take those for granted. And so there are a lot of opportunities for people to get into preparedness simply as a function and simply by justifying their actions by thinking of this in terms of, of good citizenship. And so if people don't like to think of ter- uh, prepping and they don't like to think of survivalists, if they don't want to think of it in those terms, think of it in terms of I want to be a good citizen. And what do good citizens do? Good citizens are prepared so that the government doesn't have to bail them out and so that they can go help someone else in a time of need. Now, on, on that note, you uh, you also seem to feel the government has a role to play in this. You are a lobbyist. That would probably put you a little closer to home with government-based solutions. Understand you're talking to a, a an anarchist, basically, here in me. So usually when somebody says to me, should the government, I'll just know. Uh, in general. There's a lot of things I think the government could do, but they generally don't pull it off. What do you feel government can do to create this cultural preparedness? Because in my opinion, up till now, they've actually been a counterforce. They've, they've created the illusion that they can, they can fix everything. Uh, they've, they've created this, this concept of, yeah, if you do too much prepping, you're nuts or you're bad or you're a threat, you're a domestic terrorist. And you asked about FEMA. Well, FEMA says, okay, well, you should have three days. Well, there's no, actually no conflict with the FBI because the FBI doesn't say if somebody buys three days worth of food, let us know. They say if somebody buys a month worth of food, let us know. And it almost feels to me like what the government's saying is we want you to be just prepared enough to get by from little stuff but still be dependent on us in your lives. So I'm not a real big fan of government, if you can't tell. So from that angle, what would you say to somebody like me that says, hey, we've had enough help from you guys. How about we start taking care of ourselves? Uh, well, first I would start by saying I am a card-carrying member of the Libertarian Party, and so I probably share a lot more okay. of your views than you think I do. But cool. at, at the reality is that we're going to have government whether we like it or not. And so what policies can we put in place prior to disaster that would reduce the effects that disasters have on communities? So, for example, if we have building codes that require people who live in disaster-prone areas to build their houses just a little bit stronger than you would in some other place, then that reduces the risk that my roof is going to not end up in your living room. And so that's one of the things we can do that has nothing necessarily to do with a post-disaster thing. That's just something of making our homes and our communities stronger. 
For another example is setting up what's called a disaster savings account. And there's legislation in Congress to do this. Uh, there are legislation in certain states to do this and basically create something like a health savings account or an IRA where a portion of your income can be put into this account and it can grow tax-free. And you could use that money for certain disaster mitigation things, such as putting in a storm shelter, uh, hardening your home, building a safe room, those sorts of things. That you could do that with tax-free dollars is a way to encourage people to prepare. Sales tax holidays. We just got that uh, here in Texas. That just passed by our legislature. And the last weekend in April is going to be our first ever disaster emergency preparedness sales tax holiday weekend. And there's a whole list of things that you'll be able to buy, uh, products, disaster products, that you'll be able to buy sales tax free. Funding disaster mitigation efforts. And I'm not a big fan of just spending tax dollars willy-nilly, but the reality is that for every dollar we spend in mitigation, we get about an $8 uh, return in savings. And so there are things that we could do to reduce the amount of damage. I mean, if we're going to spend tax dollars, we're going to have government programs, let's get some benefit out of it. Let's get some sort of return out of it. No, I understand that. It's a, what I refer to in permaculture as a design restriction, right? I may not like the fact that the neighbor owns the property next to me, but he does, so I have to design with that social consideration in mind. So government is what government is, and I'm not a fan at all, if you can't tell, but it is there, and it, it and many of the things that you said you're talking about to me are not so much the government doing something; it's the government stopping doing something. So, for instance, the sales tax holiday—that's not really the government doing anything. That's the government not stealing your money if you do certain things for your own benefit during a particular time. I get that. I'm I'm fine with that. Yeah, and I mean, those are the sorts of things is, is coming up with those good public policies. I was a public policy major in college, and so I've, you know, I've studied this off and on for a number of years. What is the right mix of government policies that make societies stronger, that make us more resilient, that reduce dependency on government? And when you implement those, we see communities becoming stronger, and so that when the next storm comes, that people have. The storm cellars. For example, look at Moore, Oklahoma, just up the road from where you are. After the, the horrible tornadoes there of, of 2013 or 2014, whenever that was, uh, the city of Moore got very serious about building codes, and uh, a number of people in that community have not only retrofitted their home for tornadoes, they've installed storm shelters uh, in their homes or outside of their homes. And so those and, and the community and the city has made that uh, uh, possible. And, and they're, you know, they're expediting the permit process and making sure that people can do it timely and maybe making sure people can, can afford to do it. There are a number of projects and a number of policies we can put in place to make it easier for all of us to be better prepared. There's a there's a lesson there in civil defense as well. A well-prepared country is not just prepared for a disaster. They're prepared to be defensible of their own borders should it ever come down to it. Switzerland is brought up by proponents of the Second Amendment, which I, I certainly am. Uh, but I think sometimes almost misrepresented. It's like, well, no one has ever invaded Switzerland because, you know, every male is a military member. Everybody has a gun in their house, and that's true. But I think there's a lesson there beyond that. They're not just armed. Switzerland is one of the most civil defense prepared nations that's ever existed on the planet. There's there's community shelters. There's incentive for people to put shelters in under their homes. And unlike you and I, they're not dealing with a tornado every other day. I mean, if somebody invaded Switzerland, yeah, uh, an entire armed population is a problem. But they got all kinds of problems because if you try to take over a nation, it's not just the armed resistance. It's breaking the will of the population and making them accept you. Well, the more self-reliant they are, the more self-sufficient they are, 
the harder that is to do. And, and like Switzerland, to me, is the model for a lot of things, and certainly for the civil defense component of preparedness. Uh, that's right. And you know, when you think about civil defense and you think back to the World War II era here in the United States and you had volunteers who were manning the civil defense batteries of looking for invading aircraft or submarines along the coast, when you think today about the volunteer fire departments all across this country, it's people, it's volunteers, it's people like you and me that are going and manning these these uh, these stations, these fire stations, and becoming EMTs. And they're doing it oftentimes at, with money out of their own pocket because of that obligation to to have a civil defense, to have uh, a community response, to to be involved. You know, it's it's interesting that you bring that point up because I was just reading an article yesterday here in Austin about uh, the emergency service district where I used to be a volunteer firefighter, and the fact that so many ESDs fire volunteer fire departments in Texas are suffering because of you know financial limitations. And you know the first rule of reading articles online is never read the comments. Well, I violated that rule, <laughs> and I read the comments because I, I knew what was going to happen. And sure enough, there were people on there saying, well, what the fire departments need to do is they just need to go get more volunteers. And, I, A, I wanted to say, don't you think they've thought of that already? A, and B, I would, I would guess, I would bet a decent amount of money that the people who are saying go get more volunteers have never volunteered for anything like that mm-hmm. in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so you've got all these armchair quarterbacks who think they know the answers, and yet many times they've never done anything to help their community. And so that's why I'm telling people, and I know this is counterintuitive for a lot of people in the preparedness movement because we've been told by the media and we, or the, the prepper media and the alternative media that you need to hunker down, you need to be a gray man. And so my response to that is, what if uh, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, what if they had decided to be gray men? Where would our country be now? It, well, it wouldn't exist. And so there need to be people who are being leaders in this movement to get out and set that example and put those fears aside. And part of that is getting involved in your local volunteer fire department or getting involved in your, your local emergency rescue squad or getting involved in some other organization that helps the community and start bringing preparedness uh, as, a, as an idea, as a culture. Bring that up into conversations and get more people involved. Yeah, I agree. I mean, get involved in something. Go play canasta for all I care, but get out and talk to people. I mean, uh, there's, there, there's, there's something to be said for not being so introverted. And I know that's a challenge for some people because like one of your things is creating preparedness service projects, you call them. And that can be intimidating for people. They, you know, that, that don't, there's a lot of people that have a hard time walking across the street and saying hello to somebody they've never met before. So, But but I think like your project approach makes that easier because then it can be about the project, not about the person. So can you kind of say more about your your concepts on preparedness projects? Sure. And in the book, I give you a whole checklist of how to go about this. And one of the things I I point out is to what I call find your errand. And by that I mean, you know, I use this going back and relying on tenets of faith. I talk about the uh, story of Moses and how Moses was always complaining to God about, well, I'm not the guy to go lead the Israelites. He came up with excuse after excuse after excuse. And one of the excuses he came up with was, I'm not very good at public speaking. And so the Lord said, fine, I'm going to send Aaron with you, and he's going to do the public speaking for you. And so if you are not a person who uh, is skilled or feels comfortable doing presentations to people or being that salesperson, find someone who's interested in preparedness who is and have them join your effort. 
Start by coming up with your team. Who's going to help you with this project? What is the project going to be? Is it going to be something in your local schools? Is it going to be something in your neighborhood? Use your create, you know, imagination and figure out what can I do on a very small local level to facilitate change. Create a budget. Figure out where the money is going to come from. And then practice your, your sales pitch to the decision makers and then go in and, and ask for the business. So, for example, give you a, a, a quick example. Let's say you wanted to do a, a CPR project in your local high school. So you get with whoever he's going to get to provide the CPR. You've identified a local emergency responder who's certified or uh, American Red Cross. Pick your agency. doesn't matter. And you figure out what you're going to say. And then you go and speak to the uh, school principal or the school health teacher, whoever it's going to be, and you say, we've come up with this plan to provide free CPR training to your students. When can we start? And if they say, well, you know, gee whiz, we'd love to do that, but the curriculum is just too tight, we don't have time, and you say, well, I've already talked to the school board members, and they're on board with this, so when can we start? And so <laughs> that's the sort of thing, and I go through details in, in, the, in the book to give people, because I realize this is a daunting task for so many people who've never tried to do this. And the beauty of this, Jack, is that you can't screw it up. You really cannot screw this up, because... Any effort you make, you're going to learn from it. Even if it, you, you do an effort, you do a project, and you crash and burn, you've learned so much about the process. You've made some friends along the way, hopefully, some people that some allies you can count on for the next project. And you take those experiences, and you move on to another project. And so that's what I tell people is don't be afraid to fail at this because you really cannot fail at this. And the other beauty about preparedness is that unlike all the other political issues we see out there, I doubt seriously there's going to be an anti-preparedness movement, anti-preparedness lobby rise up to keep us to from teaching our kids CPR or keeping us from having stored food or, or, or learning emergency skills. That's the good thing. Everyone can at least agree that preparedness is a good idea. You may not want to spend your time and your money and resources in doing it, but no one's going to oppose your efforts in thinking it's a bad policy. So there's a lot going for us here that in a lot of other causes uh, we, we simply don't have those opportunities. Well, yeah, and I like your two-pronged approach with finding the person that can do the sales speak, so to say. I'm going to go out on a limb here. You're probably like me, and you probably are pretty good at that, um, just with your job, your profession, your background, and the way you're speaking here. So I'm going to go out on another limb and say you probably don't, are like me. You don't like to do all the fine pencil point, detail work, getting in touch. You know, Who is the person to get in touch with? What insurances are going to be required? What are their concerns? What is the procedure? Once you know it, you can take it and run with it, but you don't probably like that stuff. Most extroverts don't. That's why we go into sales and marketing, and we have teams behind us that do all that type of stuff. So if you find someone that's good at presenting, they probably don't want to do the part that the introvert is better at, and that makes a team. A team's always stronger you know, than, than even the best of individuals. Absolutely. And the more people you have on your team, I call them the tenacity multipliers. It may be that the person on my team – They like the idea of preparedness, but maybe they're not a prepper, quote-unquote, themselves, but they have a very strong relationship with uh, that deacon at the church, or they have a very strong relationship with that principal. Somebody that will just go in there and sit and smile and nod at the appropriate times, that's a, a huge asset on your team. And so don't think of it in terms of everyone has to be like-minded, and we all have to be hardcore preppers, and we all have to have a year's worth of food stored up. No, 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 no. 
think about diversifying your team so that you have those various skill sets that you're going to need moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying to stack the deck or anything, but just imagine if somebody did make a proposal to a school board or uh, a group of you know county uh, board members or something like that, and there was four or five well-known people in the audience that are always at those meetings, and when the thing was presented, a few of them just said something like, yeah, why aren't we doing that? I mean, it doesn't take more than two or three of those before people that are concerned with keeping those cush jobs start saying, well, maybe we should do something about this. At least, at least we're not just going to shut it down cold flat. We're going to at least take this under consideration. And I'm sure you know from your job, that's the hardest thing to get started with officials is to get them actually to consider it. Because it, 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 it's, it's easier for them many times to just say no. But it's not easy to say no in these small governmental bodies when key people in your community are sitting there going, yeah, I think that would be a good idea. Well, you, you, you're being very polite when you say you don't stack the deck. I wholly encourage people <laughs> to stack the deck. I mean, that's I a lobbyist. facetious. That's, no, no, no. I, no, I understand. I Listen, the, the way you bring about change is that you make it uncomfortable for the people who make decisions to go against you. That's how we bring – I see this all the time in my day job as a lobbyist is that, you know, people will come to the Capitol and tell their legislator, if you vote for this, we're going to be watching you. If you vote the way I don't want you to vote, we're going to remember that at election time. That's how change in this country and in our political process uh, has been happening for well over 200 years. And so if you go to your city council or you go to your school board and you say, I think kids should do this or I think uh, community, we should have a community effort to improve our preparedness, and you have four or five people get up who maybe it's the president of the Kiwanis Club, maybe it's somebody who's uh, a business owner who's very prominent, and they're nodding their heads and they're saying, yes, we absolutely need to do this, it becomes much more difficult for those elected officials to say no. And so that's the thing is that we want the decision maker to agree with us. And if, if me bringing someone who's uh, prominent in the community or has a personal relationship with somebody can go along with me to help influence and shape that conversation, I absolutely want them there with me. Yeah, I mean, and, and what we've been talking about today, again, is building a culture of preparedness. And and that's what you're coming at this for. I've been doing what I do now since 2008, so it, it'll be next year to be eight years. And wow, that's a long time when I think about it that way. Uh, in fact, I just figured out that I, as of yesterday, I have about 10,000 hours into the production of this show. And uh, so it's obviously something I'm very committed to, but... You know, one of the things I have to honestly ask myself at times, and I'll honestly ask you now, can we actually create a culture of preparedness in this country? Or is much of the pop culture and the, the lackadaisicalness and the perception bias too far gone? I, I kind of, you know, took note when I saw the subtitle of your book because back in 2009, I was approached to interview uh, a gentleman I'm sure you've heard of, General Russell Honore. And his book was called Survival, How a Culture of Preparedness Can Save You and Your Family from Disasters. And so you're trying to do this, he's trying to do this, I'm trying to do this. And many times I feel like the ant in the ant lion hole, where when you think you're getting somewhere, the dirt comes up and knocks you back down in the hole constantly. The answer, short answer to your question is absolutely we could do this. And I'll tell you why I say that. One of the things I talk about in the book is if we want to create a culture, let's look at other 
situations in American history where culture has been changed by average citizens. And so I look at the civil rights movement. I look at the environmental movement. I look at the AIDS awareness movement, things that have absolutely nothing to do with preparedness. And there are some common themes there that we can glean. For example, uh, I like to tell the story about Denmark, South Carolina. Denmark, South Carolina had one of the highest teen pregnancy rates in the state. And so the local leaders got together and said, what can we do to fix this? And so they came up with a multi-pronged approach in that they stressed abstinence because that was a message that through the local churches they could stress both at home and in church. Uh, they also worked with local businesses to provide pre free prophylactics to teenagers. And you say, well, wait a minute, those two ideas are, are, are completely opposite of each other. Well, they very well may be, but the reality is that when businesses and local leaders worked together, they took Denmark, South Carolina from having one of the highest teen pregnancy rates in the, in the state to one of the lowest, and they did so in a very short period of time. And so there's all these lessons that we can learn. For example, smoking cessation. You know, you look at the smoking rate of Americans, and I'm not knocking smoking, but the, the reality is that the smoking rate has dropped roughly in half since 20 or 30 years ago. And part of the reason is that employers started making their places smoke-free and started offering smoke cessation classes. And so if employers were to get on board with creating a culture of preparedness and say, you know what, employees, we need you to be back here at work after disaster. We need you to have several days' worth of food and water. We need you to have some emergency supplies in your vehicle and start encouraging people to do that then you would start to get that culture shift, that people would start to value preparedness. For I have a, a, a member company of my organization. I work for the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. I have a member in my organization that tells their employees, after disaster, you have 72 hours. And on hour 73, we expect you to be back at your desk working because we expect to have a, a large number of insurance claims to come in, and we need you at work. And so this company tells their people, you need to have food. You need to have water. They routinely do bulk purchases to help their employees defray the cost of purchasing this for their home. They keep food and water uh, and, and diesel for their generators on site at their office to help people who aren't prepared. And so if employers started taking these initiatives and doing this and creating this culture, then other people would uh, catch on as well. And so we absolutely can do this, but it's going to require those of us within the movement to step out of our comfort zone, and start creating these culture of preparedness uh, projects and setting the tone and, and being the leaders and, and, and motivating people to change. But we just have to start taking the first steps. I mean, I, I, I want to believe that. I mean, I do my, my work every day for the people that want to participate in the end. And I figure the more that do, the more that will. It's kind of a critical mass thing. But what gives me pause is things like, so I know quite a few law enforcement officers in, in my family and just from what I do and the work that I do, et cetera. And I know police officers that are well prepared in their vehicle, their personal vehicle and their, their work vehicle. And they're ready to go at a moment's notice. And they know that something could happen and they're going to get, be the first one to get the call and they're going to have to be out the door and go stand in the danger and make something happen. And you go to their house and they ain't prepared for Jack diddly and their family's not going to have 72 hours for them to be there with them like like this company you're talking about they're the first responders so that means guess what you go first and it, it, it dumbfounds me that you know they have a, a, a security system because they see burglaries all the time but you know if you ask them for a flashlight you know i will go out to my my, my my vehicle and get one out of my my service kit what is your what does your wife or your kid do when you're not here? You know, where's your basic blackout kit? Oh, I haven't really thought of that. 
And my feeling like if, if that guy's not prepared or that woman's not prepared in the home, then how do we get that thinking into, you know, Susie Homemaker and Johnny Engineer? Well, first of all, in your scenario with the law enforcement, in my mind, that's a failure of leadership. And if I'm a police chief in a community or I'm a fire chief in a community or I'm head of EMS in a community, I'm going to be telling my people, you need to make sure that things at home are squared away because in a disaster, you may not be at home. You may be working, you know, two well, shifts. I'm not maybe. being at home, right? I mean, that's you know, not maybe may not be. You're you're going to be here. That's part of the job description is that when, when things are bad, you're going to be working long hours. So you need to have things squared away at home. But again, if people like us get out in our communities and start setting the example, people will catch on. And the reason I know that's true, Jack, is because I write a book and I have people who, you know, people I've known for years who will reach out and call me and say, you know, I've really been watching the news, and I'm really concerned. I've got this small group of people here, and we're starting to prepare, but we just don't know how to get other people on board. There is this hunger. There is this 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 appetite for leadership in the preparedness movement to go out and set the example. We've never tapped into that as an organization, as, as a movement. We prepare ourselves, and if people come to us and ask for guidance, we'll give them some, some suggestions, and that's great. We've never tried to create that culture on a widespread basis. And so I understand your frustration, and my response to that is the reason we have that is because As a, as a movement, I mean, obviously you've got a, a great podcast here. You're doing your part, but there are millions of preppers out there, millions of survivalists, call them whatever you want, that are not taking the initiative to go out and start creating that culture of preparedness. That's what we have to do. I am convinced, I am absolutely convinced that once this group starts to go out and create that culture, People will fall in line because there is such an appetite for leadership that people just need somebody they know and somebody they trust to set the example and to help them get started. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think it's, it, I, I think it kind of goes part and parcel to the what I call it, and somebody people will be mad at me for it, but the decline of the Boy Scouts of America. Uh, when they're more worried about politics than their basic model of being prepared, and kids can't squirt each other with a squirt gun. And, 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 and it, it's kind of lost its cool factor. And I know that seems kind of superficial to say to make it cool, but we're trying to sell an idea here and cool sells. And I, I mean, I don't know. I think having a, a mobile battery bank in the back of your truck is kind of cool. I think being able to look out after yourself if you end up on the side of the road is kind of cool. I think that most people, when they actually see the, the, the practical hands on usage, of preparedness things and realize that a kit isn't something we buy fully contained, put away and only bring out in a disaster. But, you know, when I was at a friend's house back when we first really started getting deeper into this and he said, you know, we got to move the party inside because all the kids were getting tore up with mosquitoes. And I'm like, hold on. And I went and grabbed my bug out bag out of the, the truck and pulled out a can of off and said here. And they didn't even have bugs spray at the house. And it's like, Oh, that has an application for something that's simple. And I think that's a big part of it too. So it's out there being, you know, missionaries, so to say. But it's also like, here's how this benefits you today. Because that's like the main tenet we've always taught everything from. Every step you take should have some tangible benefit, even if nothing goes wrong, but should be set up with a function stack so that it helps you when something goes wrong. Because if, to me, if it's out the window, something will go wrong in your life. Every single year of your life, you'll have to deal with something. And, 
the more prepared you are, the more it's an inconvenience and the less it is a disaster. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's one of those deals where, um, using your, your can of off as an example, when people see that some very basic preparedness steps can alter the quality of life, just having a few days of, of food and water, just having that can of off, having some flashlights, that dramatically improves your quality of life in a disaster. And once we educate people and show people that you don't have to have a, a massive, you know, $100,000 bug out vehicle and a ranch four hours away on 300 acres that's fully you know, self-contained, you don't have to have all that in order to be better prepared, then I think more people are going to get more into the movement. But it's going to take that repeated exposure to people like yourself. And you think about the number of lives that this podcast has touched, the number of people you've motivated. If we all went out and did something uh, along the lines, if we all had a project or an effort to help others get better prepared and to see the light, how much better off would we be? I would submit we would be a much better, a stronger nation, not just for disasters, but also we we would know who our neighbors are. Uh, we would be more apt to check on that elderly person you talked about down the street. We would be doing the things that we did 50, 60 years ago. Absolutely. So as we wrap up here, can you kind of tell people, you know, do you have a website they can learn more about yet? How can they get your book? That type of thing. Sure. Uh, the book is called Pivot Points by Paul Martin. If you go onto Amazon and just type in Pivot Points Paul Martin, it will be the, the first choice. It's available uh, in, in paperback as well as Kindle. If you're a Kindle Unlimited subscriber, you can read the book absolutely free. And my website is PrepperDepot.org. And that .org is important, PrepperDepot.org. And in my website, I, I try to get away from the notion of preparing for apocalypse and just start a conversation about not only rational preparedness, but how we can build a culture of preparedness through public policy, through our, our houses of worship, through our everyday work, uh, work life, and in our homes and our families, and start to start this conversation and have sh and people having sharing ideas about what they're doing, what, what's working out there for them. That's awesome, and I'm glad you pointed out the org because I had typed in real quick .com, and I think I was about to send some wise food reseller an awful lot of business by accident. So, <laughs> if they're listening now, they're like, no! But uh, I'll make sure there's a link to uh, PrepperDepot.org in the show notes today, along with uh, I've already got a direct link to your book on Amazon. And uh, I want to say I appreciate the work that you do, Paul, and I appreciate you being here with us today at the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me, and thanks for all you do. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Paul Martin, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I never used to miss the chance to climb upon his knee Listen to the many tales of life upon the sea We'd go sailing back on barking teams And talk of things he did Tomorrow just a day away For the captain and the kids This world had gone from sailing ships To raking mom's backyard He never could adjust to land Although he tried so hard We both were growing older then 
wiser with our years That's when I came to understand Of course his heart still steers Listen to his many tales Life upon the sea We'd go sailing back on Barkentine Talk of things he did The world was just a day away For the captain and the kid For the captain and this kid 